Welcome to the Natural Capital Podcast, produced as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. My name is Rachel Smiley and in this series we explore different natural capital assets and their value to Scottish agriculture and the rural economy, plus the pressures and threats they face. We speak to people, groups and experts helping to manage, protect and restore these resources, ecosystems and habitats. The Scottish Government has committed to establish a new national park by spring 2026 and now the appraisal framework has been released. It outlines draft selection criteria for the new national park and there's a call for expressions of interest from local areas. So at the time of recording, this potential locations are still to be confirmed, but suggestions previously have included Harris, Glenafric and Galloway, to name a few. The aims of national parks are to conserve nature and the landscape, while also providing provisions for the enjoyment of the area and promote sustainable development. The new designation of a national park in Scotland means there will be a new form of integrated management across the landscape and the communities it supports. Restoring natural capital is embedded within national park policy. Therefore, farmers within the new park might be anticipating some future changes. This has led to some groups such as NFUS wanting to seek assurances that a new park would benefit agricultural businesses and the wider rural economy. On this episode, we are speaking to Frida Scott Park and David Scott Park from Port Nellan, an organic farm within Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park boundary, to find out what it really is like to farm within a national park. Would you like to introduce yourselves and the farm? Well, I'm David Scott Park. The family have had this farm for 70 years, 71 years actually now. We used to be an organic dairy farm, um, but then 13 years ago we switched to organic beef and we've also quite widely diversified. We are in a stunning location and we have certain advantages from that. Uh, we do self-catering accommodation and we also do boat moorings. Uh, farm tours, and my son does um, speedboat tours, kayak and paddleboard hire. I'm Frida Scott Park. I came to the farm in 1983 when I married David. I'm a veterinary surgeon by training, although I have what's called a portfolio career, but my involvement with farming isn't quite as much as it used to be now because um, our son Chris is now on the farm as well. Um, but I do the sort of uh, general helping with the diversification, bookkeeping and things like that while maintaining my own career. OK, brilliant. And to start off, well, the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park was established in 2002. Has the landscape changed much since it's been designated as a national park? I would say not. Um, I think we still have the same uh, beautiful scenery. Um, the National Park has a policy against any large-scale wind farms, which would certainly impact on us. But I would say the National Park is, is very much the way it has always been. Certainly, we notice a big increase in visitor numbers, which, as we've diversified, is to a certain extent to our advantage. But in general, the, the National Park is still what it always was. I suppose if I could put a comment in there, what the National Park has done is created more infrastructure for visitor numbers. Obviously, as soon as you create a National Park, you're creating a honeypot for visitors. And that means they're going to visit in greater numbers. And one would hope that National Park authorities will make sure that um, there's enough car parking and transport links and toilets, facilities, food outlets, 
for visitors to come to. And certainly that's what I've noticed has changed in our national park. And being in such an idyllic location yourselves, are you impacted by the high visitor numbers that come to the park? We're not adversely affected, I would say, because we're sort of slightly down a dead end and you really have to have a reason to come to, uh, to come to visit us. So we're not adversely affected. But I might add a comment on the uh, infrastructure. I also sit on the community council and uh, I hear quite a few views that the infrastructure is inadequate. There's not enough toilets or not enough, yeah, not enough toilets in different locations. Car parking is, um, is short just because of the numbers of people that are now visiting. So we can go back to the farming aspect. What is it like to farm in a national park? Do the aims and ambitions of the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park align with yourselves and for Port Nellan? I would say that we fit quite comfortably within that. Yeah, we're an organic farm and um, that ties in with their wanting to encourage nature. Um, we've had some help from the National Park in the past to do some fencing and hedging. And that's been to the benefit of the farm and to the benefit of the environment. Nature friendly farming is a key aspect of the new National Park consultation. What does nature friendly farming mean to you? I think if I was to answer that question, I would be tempted to say it largely means organic farming um, in that we're not using we're not using herbicides and pesticides. So that's a good starting point. But it also means integrating trees, hedges, ponds um, with the farm system. And have you done any of that on farm? Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, we've, we have. We've done a lot with hedges over the last, I don't know, 20 years or something. Um, we had a lot of overgrown hedges. Some of these we've cut right back and replanted. Um, so we've got quite a lot of hedges established. Um, when the RSPB came and did a bird survey, they didn't know which way to go because we had so many, so many hedgerows and uh, I suppose you call it linear woodland. Um, so yeah, that, that was encouraging. I also um, put in a pond a number of years, years ago up at the top of the farm, principally uh, as a source of a water storage source for um, cattle drinking during the summer. But immediately we noticed uh, a complete change in um, what was what was growing there. We've got aquatic plants, we've got um, dragonflies and butterflies and things. So it did have quite an impact on the local ecosystem there. And I'd be quite keen to do a bit more of that. Well, that's really interesting because a lot of the farmers we speak to do see an increase in biodiversity, but they haven't taken measures to kind of baseline when they put these kind of the ponds and things in. Have you? gone through the formal process of baselining the biodiversity to see how it improves over the years? The answer to that is is no, I haven't gone through any formal process. It's, it's just a matter of what we observe. Um, and I guess, you know, we do observe quite a few changes in nature. So we used to see a reasonable number of curlews here, for example. Uh, now I get quite excited if I see one. On the other hand, um, over my time here, the number of ospreys has gone from zero to quite a few. I wouldn't like to specify how many, but there's quite a few nesting around the loch now. And am I right in saying that you have sea eagles close by to the farm or is it golden eagles? It's neither. Um, we had we had sea eagles uh, visiting briefly. Um, the National Park Authority got very excited about it and uh, put a great sort of press thing about how pleased they were to see them back after an absence of 150 years. Um, but then this is where our views differed because they um, then put 16 flashing boys as a cordon round uh, Torrench where the birds were seen. Um, the birds were naturally wild and they didn't stay. But, 
the flashing boys did stay um, and they, they did finally remove them. So they were just visiting. They weren't back for good. No, not, no, they haven't. They haven't become resident. They're not here. So with all the nature improvements that you've done in farm, how does this balance with the food production aspect? I think the two sit quite comfortably together. I think we can, we can definitely do both things. Have you changed anything that you do on farm since the National Park was established? Well, if that question means have we changed it as a result of the National Park, the answer to that is no. We, we, we get on and farm as, as we want. Um, the National Park does not interfere with the way we farm. I want to just go back to the diversifications that you mentioned. So you're saying your son does speedboat tours. How does this interact with the farming business? Um, it sits quite comfortably along, alongside it. The visitors come, the visitors go, and the farming gets on with it. Um, I, I suppose we're quite lucky in that uh, mostly the visitors are at one end of the farm, so they don't interfere too much with the actual activities on the farm. I happened to attend the launch of the Future Nature, which I find the clunkiest title in the world that our national park is, that that's what they've called their action plan. And although I thoroughly approve of the aims and objectives of that action plan um, under the Future Nature title, I actually attended on behalf of the Nature Friendly Farming Network. And there's very little you can disagree with in this action plan. And I was very pleased to hear the National Park say they needed to work in partnership. And I think everybody needs to work in partnership these days. We can achieve very little by ourselves. I think the important thing about our particular national park, Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, is that they have always put as one of the aims and objectives is to support local businesses, um, not just to you know, develop a, a naturally beautiful location to the detriment of local business. And that leaves me with um, a lot of optimism that, you know, we can work together. I think we are what they are looking for. We're an organic farm. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to what we've got on the farm. I would love to do some more small scale uh, tree planting. Uh, we have a lot of trees, but a lot of our trees are part of an ancient woodland. And they are beginning to enter the declining stage of their life. And a lot of them need help and support. And we need new saplings coming up beside them to support them in their old age as they decline. I mean, it's not wrong that old trees die. It's they're going to contribute to soil health, you know, when they eventually, you know, sort of um, crumble down. But we need to replace them. And that's the one thing that I think the National Park really could help with um, is small scale tree planting, which is quite difficult for farmers to tackle because you plant a tree. It needs a huge amount of infrastructure to protect it from all its natural predators, which includes the rather large number of deer that are going around. And of course, if you're grazing in amongst the trees, which is considered to be a nature-friendly farming thing to do, you need to save that small sapling from the trample of the herbivores that are round about it. And is that something that's offered in the new future nature strategy, like the small-scale tree planting? I haven't seen it written down. Um, the meeting I attended was very high level. It was talking about, you know, the partnerships and where we were trying to get to and supporting biodiversity and local communities and 
uh, like I say, you couldn't disagree with anything. I haven't had a chance, if it indeed exists, to look at the document that, you know, maybe supports all that. But I would certainly encourage, you know, the National Park to talk to um, landowners around the um, park to make sure that they have the opportunity to do these small projects that I think if lots and lots of farmers were to do would make a huge difference to the aims and objectives of future nature. Yeah, the last meeting I had with the National Park, it was NFUS uh, and the National Park. And I think the National Park are quite keen to hear from landowners um, with potential projects that they would like to carry out. And I think the National Park would then um, look to support these projects. So I think they are quite keen to engage with landowners on that front. I did read the highlights of the Future Nature Strategy and it seemed that they were interested to involve the communities and it was kind of like a landscape project and they did want to work with landowners kind of on farm scale to kind of connect all the habitats together. So that it was a good approach that I did read. Yeah, I might counter that by saying that I didn't think their approach to the release of beavers at the south end of Loch Lomond was very well structured. Well, that was my next question. Well, we like this. <laughs> you want to ask the question first? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it was just, I know that they were released quite near where you are in the National Park. And just what, not your opinion on beavers, but the consultation did that include landowners and farmers as it should for a reintroduction of a species? I'm certainly very happy to chat about that. The RSPB, who were the, the um, people applying for the licence to translocate the beavers, were obliged to carry out a consultation process. But I would suggest that the consultation process was more of a promotional process, promoting the merits of beavers. And we, the Community Council, felt they had not done a very good job of consulting and held our own meeting where there was very strong opposition to it, not total opposition, but there was fairly strong opposition to the release of beavers. One of the points that they made was that they deemed the nature reserve as just the ideal place to release beavers. And they released um, seven beavers in total. Two were killed by otters, which is just part of the natural process, and the rest have moved on. So clearly the beavers didn't regard that location as quite so suitable as the RSPB and the National Park. And in fact, they actually don't know where they've gone. They think they've gone up the Endrick, but they're not sure. That's funny. I never knew that they have moved on. I knew two got killed by otters, but I wasn't aware that the rest have moved. They haven't seen them for a while. I mean, I have to say I'm fairly pro-beavers, but it's got to be a bit like the trees, the right beaver in the right place. And I do completely admit that the beavers that are on the River Tay have done untold damage to, you know, prime agricultural land on riverbanks. Whereas I think in the smaller streams and places that they can safely build dams without damaging agricultural infrastructure, then, you know, I think they add a huge richness of diversity to the landscape. So I, I, I sit on Environment and Land Use Committee of the National Farmers Union Scotland, and I have to always say to the guys, now look guys, I, as, as a beaver person, I sit very much on the fence. I'm very much pro the right beaver in the right place, whereas uh, there's a lot of farmers who sit on that who are anti all beavers. Yeah, prior, prior to the, um, the um, community council holding their, their um, meeting about beavers, I went up to Blair Gary to the River Erich and I saw the damage there. I also spoke to a farmer near Aberfeldy 
I think that um, the numbers of beavers are far, far greater than um, what is perceived by the authorities. So what were the main concerns about the beavers coming and were these told to RSPB and the Loch Lomond and the Trossachs Park? Well, they certainly had the opportunity to um, engage in the community council meeting. Uh, they, they were there. They did. They did hear what they said. What was said. Uh, the main concerns, I suppose, were around uh, tree felling, particularly from the fishermen who had got grants to plant trees to provide shade along riverbanks and to stabilise riverbanks. The shade was to allow the salmon to spawn because river temperatures are increasing and they're getting to the state that um, they're getting too warm for the salmon to actually spawn successfully. So there was a lot of concern that these trees that have been grant aided were then going to be felled by beavers. And the other concern was a kind of reflection of what had happened up at uh, Tayside where they had burrowed into bankings and altered the course of fairly substantial rivers by you know, 20, 25 metres. Um, the burrow is a you know, almost a two-foot diameter tunnel, and it can go 10 metres into the banking. And then when the river comes up in spate, water goes down the burrow, and the whole banking collapses. And also up on the Erich there, they had exposed an old rubbish dump as well. And now there's an enormous amount of problems with plastic and stuff coming down the river as a result of that. But to answer the other part of the question is, have, have the concerns come to fruition here? The answer is not that I'm aware of at this point. Or if they are, I think that, I think they have been you know, manageable. I haven't heard any major, major concerns about it yet. And, and I know that um, I've talked a lot about the kind of negative side of it, but I've also spoken to a, quite a number of people who um, have beavers, and they say that the pleasure of seeing the beavers outweighs the damage that they're causing. There are two stories, and I think it's back to what Frida said. Beavers in the right place are probably okay. There is more information about beavers and their impacts and opportunities on the Farm Advisory website. There is some concern in certain sectors about the impact a new national park might have. What would you say to farmers who are concerned about how the aims of national parks and farming align? I would say that... In general, being in the National Park has not affected the way I farm. You can expect to have an increased visitor number. If those visitors are not managed, then that may cause problems from additional traffic, um, trying, trying to harvest things, and you've got a lot of extra traffic in the roads, so maybe a conflict of interest there. One of the other concerns I have is that um, our National Park, the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park, want to be a sort of example of nature-friendly, uh, low-carbon environment or whatever, and I just wonder at what cost this is going to be and who's going to have to foot the bill for that. So whether the farmers, or, or not just farmers, but whether businesses in the National Park are going to be expected to uh, perform to higher standards than those out with the National Park, and whether there's going to be any funding to support any increased costs, which I rather doubt. And do you think these are the same concerns that some farmers may have with a new national park, the pressures that will be placed on them? I think some of the concerns that I've heard at, at national park meetings or meetings to promote another national park are the amount of interference that the national park will have on their farming operation. But in my experience, they have not interfered with my farming operation directly. It would simply be extra visitor man uh, management and and extra visitor numbers.
I think if farmers were trying to get out on a, a busy main road, you know, say they had a, a beast in, you know, the livestock trailer or they were trying to, you know, take sheep to market or something like that. And there's a complete road jam on some road like the A82, which I personally think is inadequate for the volume of traffic it is being asked to take. It must be utterly frustrating for people like that. We aren't directly affected. We don't have many farm-related road movements and we can choose to go when we want to go. But I can see that um, that might be one of the reasons that farmers who have to transport, whether it's grass or crops or livestock, um, substantial distances across public roads would be very worried about the increased vehicle traffic in a national park. And I know the national park, they've got the camping ban in the summer, and I think it's extended year wide in some areas. Do you have anyone ever coming down to nearby you to wild camp on your land? We've offered the opportunity for camper vans to come and stay on the farm. Uh, we have an electrical hookup. We can offer them water. And actually, that's been very beneficial for us. We meet some really interesting people. Uh, they get the opportunity to stay as a single van or caravan in um, you know, a very beautiful location. And we've really enjoyed doing that. Uh, it's not you know, a formal arrangement, but um, it's benefited us and them. Wild camping, we really keep quite a close eye on. There are two types of wild campers, those who are walking and taking great heed of their right of responsible access, and they'll come onto the farm and they'll leave the farm and you wouldn't know they'd been there. And then there's the others who come on and leave all their trash, if not their tent, and bits and pieces and broken bottles and cans for the farmer to find at some stage and clear up. We haven't had too much problem in the last five years. Do the National Park help with the litter issue if there has been wild camping? Do they send any services out to, to clean up? I think the National Park are overextended in trying to keep the rather um, huge amount of land under control. Obviously, uh, Loch Lomond alone has its 24 islands and I think the majority of the population around Loch Lomond and in Glasgow think Loch Lomond is its own playground. And they go up regularly and camp and leave quite a substantial amount of litter. I have heard anecdotally that things are getting better and people are better educated, but it's a huge job to clear up after people. So if we're ever out on the islands, we'll often take a bag and tidy up after people just to bring it home and leave the you know the beautiful landscape looking a bit better without the evidence of humans having been there. Um, one of the other concerns about um, national parks is um, certainly Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park are keen to restrict or limit the use of uh, private cars and I'm concerned about this in a, for a number of aspects. First of all rural transport is not great so, for example, if you want to walk up Ben Lomond, you need a car to get there or, or you've got a two day walk, basically. That's one thing. They've also started charging for car parks. I don't mind paying a modest fee for car parks. Talking about Argyll and Butte now, who have a car park around at the Cobbler and they charge by the hour. And if you're going out for a day's hill walking, it's very difficult to determine how many hours you're going to be out for. And I do object to that. 
um, I also have concerns about um, reducing the reliance on cars in a rural environment because, again, as I said, public transport is not there. You can't rely on it. We would like some reassurance of how that's going to translate into planning policy because we have holiday accommodation here and we may wish to extend that. And I wouldn't like to see us being obliged to um, provide some sort of uh, or, or allow people to get there by public transport because it's just not going to happen. I think I can echo what you're saying. I've recently moved to Aberfoyle and I found out that there's no bus on a Sunday and a few times I've stood at the bus stop and it's just not turned up and they're every two hours. So it, getting used to the rural transport system is eye-opening and I think it does need improved. Yeah, and that's that's if you live in Aberfoyle, and if you live out of Aberfoyle, it'll be even harder. Yes, thankfully I'm about fifty meters from the bus stop. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the other th the other thing that's kind of talked about not infrequently is twenty minute neighbourhoods where everything you need for your basic requirements is within twenty minutes. Well, if we were to walk to the to the village, we'd be the best part of two hours, well, an hour and a half there probably, and an hour and a half back, three hours. Twenty minute neighbourhoods are just not going to work in a rural environment. Hang on. Excuse me, I've got to correct that. Even I can walk to the village in about an hour. It's only two miles. David? I mean, you know, you're supposed to be able to... I'm sorry, I cannot let that go. Okay, I... well, let, 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 let's, <laughs> let's just say that um, a 20-minute 20 20 minute neighbourhood is not going to happen. <laughs> Maybe he's taking some time to look at the nature and walking very slowly. I've never seen him walk, to be quite honest. <laughs> I, I rather resent that comment. I walk to see the cows every day. <laughs> okay, so final question. What would you both like to see in a new national park? And do you have any thoughts on where you would like to see the next one? Let me start by answering that question. I think that I have no strong views on where the national and another national park should be. I think that is entirely up to the, the people who it's going to concern. We're already in a national park. We've got we've got our national park, and I wouldn't like to suggest that another place would be particularly good for it or otherwise. I know there's been a lot of consultation over where a new national park might be. Um, we got involved ooh, maybe ten years ago, going down to Dumfries and Galloway to speak to a group of farmers, and it was really David going down as a farmer to comment about what it was like to farm in a national park. But it was quite interesting to me because in that room there were two sort of two populations. There were the farmers who were really quite against having a national park for all the reasons that you might imagine that there, there, there will be challenges. There may be restrictions on planning or what you can do or, as we've already talked about, implications for moving between farm to farm. But there was another population in that room that day and I was able to speak to them a bit later and that was the farmers partners the wives and the families who actually would have quite liked to have diversified as we've diversified and I'll be quite frank with you the reason we're making money on the farm now is because of the diversification and that's what a national park can bring to the area is an element of the honeypot and if you are offering accommodation or activities, or farm food, or selling your produce off the farm, by having a national park around you, you will have a greater population interested in coming for your services or your produce. 
and that's good news. Yeah, there are definitely opportunities to be had in national parks. As Frida said, if, you, if you're prepared to diversify, then there will be opportunities. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you both for coming on to this episode of Natural Capital. The consultation on the draft appraisal framework is now open until August. It is seeking your views and comments on the selection criteria for a new national park in Scotland. We will provide a link to the page in the show notes. If you want to find out more on what we have discussed, there's lots of additional content on the Fast Sounds pages and Farm Advisory Service website. You can listen to all of the podcasts produced for Fast Sounds wherever you normally listen to your podcasts. We hope you join us for the next episode of Natural Capital. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.